This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. And before we get started today, a quick production note. For most of the past year, Nalini Nadkarni has been hosting this program, bringing decades of experience in biology to our weekly show. We've been so fortunate to have her as part of our team. But one of the things Utah Public Radio does really well is showcasing and developing journalistic talent. And you know, sometimes that's sort of to our detriment. For the second time since I stepped away from hosting this program full-time in 2021, we're losing our host. As longtime listeners will recall, last year we were exceptionally sad, but also really proud to send Shoshana Buxbaum off to a new job at Science Friday. And this year we are equally sad and equally proud to say that Nalini is launching a new program on KUER in Salt Lake City called Tree Note. And she's also going to be heading up a national effort to raise awareness about the values of being in nature. And we couldn't be more excited for her. So what does that mean for our program? Well, for the next few months, I'll be stepping back behind the microphone a little more often. And we're also really excited to be inviting some more guest hosts into the studio. But our mission remains the same as it has been since we launched this program back in 2018. We scour the recently published research for interesting and important developments all across the scientific disciplines and bring you the researchers behind those studies in interviews aimed at helping make scientific discovery interesting, informative, and fun. And to that end, on today's program, we're going to be talking about snails, and in particular, we're going to talk about a species of freshwater mud snail, no longer in length than a pencil is wide, that is native to New Zealand and has begun to spread all across the world, coming to dominate lake and river ecosystems in Asia and Europe and North America, where in some places these things can be found in the hundreds of thousands in just a single square meter of mud. As a result of this success, this snail often outcompetes native snails and water insects for food, which can affect fish populations that have evolved to eat those native species. Now, it's exceptionally unlikely that we're ever going to figure out a way to get rid of all of these snails, but we can learn from them. And that's what Karina Don and Maureen Neiman are trying to do. Their recent studies suggest that one of the key elements to invasive success is how fast a non-native species reproduces relative to its native competitors. Karina Don is a PhD student at Colorado State University where he's studying soil microbiology. He was previously an undergraduate and master's student at the University of Iowa where he studied the evolution and ecology of New Zealand mud snails. Karina, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me on the show. I'm really excited to be here. And Maureen Neiman is an evolutionary biologist at the University of Iowa, where much of her lab's work is focused on the mud snail. Maureen, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I'm also excited to be here. Maureen, before we get into this current study, can you paint a picture of these snails for us? What what are we looking at when we're looking at one of these little guys? Well, I was just laughing at paint a picture because Karina was also an art major along with a biology major and literally painted pictures of these snails. Oh my God, we're, we're totally going to take those pictures and put them online on the website. That's great. Can, Karina, can you do that? Uh, yeah, I have several of them. <laughs> Sweet. We're going to make a gallery. All right. In the meantime, while we're, while we're waiting for listeners, many of whom are driving in their cars right now, don't stop. Don't stop driving to look at the website because Maureen's going to paint you a, a word picture. We'll paint a word picture. So 
I'm going to start with saying that these snails visually are incredibly unimpressive. They're about the size of a grain of rice, which consistently is smaller than people expect, I guess, the average snail to be. And they're, you know, they're varying shades of, of brown, light brown, dark brown, even black. But what makes these snails actually incredibly interesting and unique in the world of biology is that unlike virtually any other natural animal and plant populations, we see really frequent coexistence between otherwise identical sexual individuals and individuals that reproduce asexually, meaning that they clone themselves. And this is spectacular because we can do these comparisons between sexual and asexual individuals that allow us to figure out what's good and what's bad about reproducing sexually. Now, usually when a life form reproduces asexually, its population has a much lower level of genetic diversity, which can be a detriment to survival. And we should probably note here that the asexual version of the mud snail happens to be smaller and grow slower than its sexually reproducing counterparts. So, Marine, at first blush, those don't seem to be great traits for rapid population growth. And in particular, it's often assumed that growth rate really matters for success. Can, can you explain why growth rate would matter for success? Yeah, it's it's a great question. And and yes, you're correct that having not having low genetic variation is typically thought to be bad because what genetic variation provides is the raw material any population needs to respond evolutionarily to changes in the environment. And the asexual populations essentially don't have any meaningful variation at all. The asexual New Zealand snails do grow more slowly than their sexual counterparts. And this result actually surprised us. We really expected to see the sort of live live fast, die early kind of, of process for the asexuals. And instead, they kind of grow slowly, but they actually mature quickly. And this is odd to us because typically we think that these traits go together. Like growing fast should help you mature early, should help you reproduce early, should help you get a leg up on your competitors. But somehow they managed to couple slow growth with early reproduction. And exactly what's going on there isn't actually an open question. And that's sort of the twist here, because it's actually the asexual snails that have proliferated across the globe. And Karina, let me bring you in here. Even though the asexual snails have a lot of seeming disadvantages for success, this one trait, the, the, the uh, rapid maturing, appears to be the really big difference maker. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. Um, and it kind of all goes back to, you know, if you can make your offspring at a young age um, and everything else is equal, then your population is likely to grow more quickly. Um, so that's kind of why we think they're able to outcompete other snails is the fact that they can reproduce really fast um, and grow their population at a faster rate. And to figure this out, you took mud snails that were collected in Europe and the United States. And, and I really love the simplicity of this. I love any scientific experiment that sounds like it's something that I might be able to do at home. You just put one of these each in a little cup of water, so it was all by itself, and you fed them, and you waited, 
and you watched. And Karina, I, I gather that at some point you walk into the lab and you see that one snail has become more than one snail. That's, that feels like it would be a really fun day. Yeah, I mean, I actually do remember the day I first observed uh, a new offspring. I think I ran into Maureen's office or called her over and I was like, guess what? I found my first baby snail. Um, so it is really an exciting day for that to happen. And then once you have these little babies, what do you, because that's when like the, like a rapid amount of science has to begin, right? You have to start measuring them. Yes. Um, I would say that the word rapid has never really been used in these snails. <laughs> or uh, snails in general, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, you think something as small as a grain of rice would grow fast, but that's not the case. You know, it takes about six months or so for them to reproduce. So it is pretty tedious. And I do want to shout out my whole team of researchers who consisted of undergraduate researchers mainly and also my lab mates who helped me watch these snails grow up and and what does that really look i mean does that literally look like an undergraduate like sitting there staring at a cup of water with a little pinprick sized snail in it yes uh you have the cup under the microscope and you just look inside to see if you can see well first you want to verify that the adult snail is still alive and then you look to see if you uh, have a baby snail. So oftentimes I would have lab mates come up to me and say, why are your undergraduate students staring at empty cups? And I'm like, they're not actually empty cups. They hopefully may be a snail or two in those cups. And do students like line up for this job? Is this, this, this is, or do you have to like really like entice them with, you know, pizza and soda and all the other things that we entice undergraduates to do things with? <laughs> yeah. Um, contrary to popular belief, most science isn't as exciting day to day as it is in movies. Um, but I really entice them by telling them that this is an invasive species and how bad it can be for the ecosystem. And this is really important work. And I think, you know, that gets them hyped up um, to stare at these cups all day. <laughs> so, okay. So you take these little babies, like once the snails, the, these asexually reproducing snails, once they produce these little baby snails, you take those eventually and you put them in your their own cups and this process sort of starts again, and you're measuring and measuring and watching and watching. And eventually, Karina, you and your collaborators saw this pattern emerging where the non-native snails were growing slower than their native counterparts, but they were reproducing more rapidly. Did you suspect that you'd see this interesting juxtaposition of traits or was that a surprise it was definitely a surprise you know when you think of invasive species you think that they're gonna be able to grow really fast and reproduce really fast um, but that's not the case what we saw here the invasive snails were growing more slowly but they were reproducing earlier um, but it was it was hard to tell while the study was going on because we just have so many snails and you're checking them day to day. 
but it wasn't until we took the data and really looked at it that we saw this pattern emerge. And it was really surprising and also interesting to, to really see that. And Maureen, can we build a hypothesis from this? Do you suspect that this might be a more generalizable trait for other invasive species? Like if, if we looked at non-native species, does it stand to reason that what we'd find is that those that reach reproductive maturity faster are going to have more success, even if they don't necessarily grow bigger faster also? That's a great question. In general, in biology, the presumption is that no organism can do everything well all at once. So this means that trade-offs are involved. So for example, if you're going to perhaps uh, mature very early, maybe you can't do other things as well. And if growth and maturation are not necessarily coupled, a snail could potentially reproduce early without having to grow very fast to do that. I mean, one, and that could be generalizable to other organisms. One interesting pattern we've noticed in these snails in general, and this is actually um, backed up by some additional work that we've done in, in our lab and with other collaborators, is that it seems like the invasive snails are less sensitive to environmental perturbations or stresses than their native counterparts. And we wonder if it, this means that maybe they're essentially devoting less resources, like they just don't care <laughs> about stuff like the native snails do. And so they're they're just in a very anthropomorphic way. They're very focused on reproduction and just kind of getting it done. Whereas these native snails are having to deal with assaults from predators and from parasites and, and much more um, maybe fine-tuned adaptation to the environment. They're experiencing potentially different selective pressures than the invasive snails that force them to, to maximize values of other traits. So it could be a potentially interesting generalizable sort of pattern maybe for these snails and, and possibly beyond. I got to say, I love it when scientists are willing to anthropomorphize things. Like... <laughs> <Well>. <laughs> you got to be careful. And I think you, you need to be honest about it and transparent. But, but can you really help it? I mean, these things, they're, ad um, and again, we're going to put pictures on the website so people can see, they can look up a New Zealand mud snail. They're adorable. How can you help it? They, I, I have to agree. <laughs> Maureen, is there another species, if we if we are going to figure out if this is a trait that, you know, is, uh, that exists across more invasive species, is there another species that you're eyeballing to investigate that question? You know, I'm going to be honest and say no. <laughs> I, I'm not really an invasive species biologist. I got into these snails because I study sex. And I think it would be fantastic if other people picked this finding up and ran with it. But and I would be happy for a student to come to me who wanted to do that and, and take that lead. But it's not so much my focus. I, I think I could see Karina potentially doing that more than I'm doing it in the future because his focus really is much more on conservation and mine is more on, on evolutionary biology. Well, Karina, you're now at Colorado State University. But as I understand it, you're focused now on microbes and grassland ecosystems. That sort of seems like a departure from invasive snails. but I'm kind of guessing here that there are some takeaways from your work on this study that are informing the ways that you're looking at microbes and, and the roles they play in their ecosystems. Is that right? Yeah, that's definitely correct. Um, 
the type of experiment that I did with these snails growing them up in the lab and observing these traits is what scientists called a common garden experiment. Um, and for my PhD, I'm doing the exact same thing with grasses, except now I'm looking at how the grasses affect the microbes in the soil. Um, so I guess I really can't get away from just growing things in the lab and watching them grow daily. Where does that come from? Like, what what is it about sort of this process that is so fascinating to you? Because I, I should say here, I mean, like, we're talking about staring at water cups and literally watching grass grow. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think you kind of hit it on the head with how simple it is. You know, science doesn't have to be all these complicated experiments all the time. I think just from observing these changes can be really informative, as we see in this snail study. Um, so I really just, I don't know, I think it's the simplicity that draws me to it and how cool the results can be. And we kind of hit on this earlier, but a common garden experiment is something that people, I mean, like people could potentially do this sort of thing at home, right? What do you, what do you need to set up a common garden experiment? Well, first you need a lot of patience and then you need to have an organism that you can, you know, really isolate, whether it's in a cup or like a pot. Um, and the really key thing for uh, this type of experiment is, as the name says, common, is to have an environment that is consistent. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, potentially you could set this up in your basement and just let them grow. Um, I don't know if I would recommend it because it takes a lot more work than you would think. Um, but yeah, I mean, again, it's just a simple experiment that has been done throughout the ages and, you know, can really produce some cool results. One of the, I think, challenges with working in a field of science where you, you can set up, rel and we should say, like, relatively simple experiments. It's not like like the easiest, like you said, you got to have patience, you got to have the environment, right? There's a lot more to it. But one of the challenges with working in an area of science where there's relatively simple ways to set up experiments is, man, everything has got to look like a testable hypothesis to you, right? Yeah, I mean, you really have to know what question you're answering, um, because it, it is easy to almost get distracted by something cool you see. You know, Maureen and I definitely saw some other cool results from this experiment relating back to the genetic diversity. Um, but we had to, you know, be realistic and be like, okay, what's our main focus here? What are we really trying to answer? Um, because otherwise you just get lost in the bajillion rabbit holes um, and then you don't really know where you are anymore. So I really love that you recognize the value of a simple test of a hypothesis, because I think in science and in our field of biology, we can get so starry eyed about all of these incredible new technologies that are available from high throughput sequencing to CRISPR gene editing. And these things are amazing and are allowing for incredible insights. But we shouldn't lose track of the fact that we still need to do these really basic, simple experiments that we could technically do in a basement with a lot of organisms that can provide unparalleled insights into biology. 
Like you can't just do the fancy stuff. You've got to do the basic stuff. It might be cheap. It might not be flashy, but it is very, very important. And, and so I do appreciate that you recognize that and, and call that out. And another value of this kind of simple science is an undergraduate can work on this stuff. You know, you're not taking a big risk on blowing $20,000 on some sequencing cycle if an undergraduate like, you know, accidentally switches cups. You can, it's, it's very amenable to people coming in at ground level and actually being able to make big contributions. And Karina, where you are right now is at Colorado State University pursuing a PhD. Where where do you want to be after that? What's what's the plan? You know, I love science communication. I think anyone can be a scientist. Um, it's not, you know, it's not just certain people who can be scientists. We're all doing science every day. Um, and so I think I'd love to end up at a museum to help do research at a museum and then also to talk to the public to get them excited about science to get them involved in any way they can be involved and maureen when you take a student like karina and you get them you know not just to a degree but also in this case to a really cool publication and a cool finding that may help inform the way that we think about an entire field of science and then like on top of that you watch them go off and they're doing this other stuff i mean like that's the that's the good stuff as a professor right well it's wonderful i mean karina's a great example because i have known him since he was an undergrad and just watching him grow and develop and really become a scientist in his own right is, is really satisfying and fulfilling. And I, what I really want though, ultimately, I don't care what Karina does as long as he's happy and fulfilled. And so he'll have to tell you if he is down the road, but I think he'd be fantastic in that kind of museum or science communication setting. We actually, we do a lot of science communication work in our lab and he was always right there, you know, doing a fantastic job of, connecting to the public and, and to especially to little kids and so on. Well, I think like if more people recognized that this work is important and, and celebrated it, um, you know, as as you've been able to do with Karina's work here, um, it might we might find that not only would more people engage in this sort of work, but also their would be more opportunities created to engage in this kind of work because as you say it's it's not that expensive yes i totally agree and then you're removing economic barriers you're removing barriers like stereotype threat if people think i'm not smart enough i'm not good enough to take a risk with this sort of resource investment if you're like hey here's some snails and some cups and a microscope like you can do this. And I think it provides a really great entry point into science for people who might not have seen themselves in that role before. Well, and Karina, let, let me come back to you on that. I mean, like you guys started with this simple experiment, you know, looking at snails in plastic cups, and now you're off to a PhD. Did having that sort of as an on-ramp to, to science give you the confidence to do what you're doing now? Definitely. You know, I, as an undergrad, was a biology major. 
and I was doing research in Maureen's lab. But there's definitely times where I felt inadequate. Um, I didn't really think I knew how to be a good scientist. Um, but through Maureen's direction and just support that she's given me has really made my confidence grow and be like, yeah, I can do this. You know, I can be a, uh, a really great scientist. And um, now I'm doing my PhD and I feel so much more independent and able to problem solve and just really come into my own as a scientist. That's Karina Don. His master's thesis on the traits of invasive mud snails was recently published in the journal Physiological Ecology. Karina, thank you so much. Thank you very much. And we were also joined today by Maureen Neiman, who's a co-author on that paper and whose lab at the University of Iowa is continuing to use the highly successful non-native mud snail to answer questions about the evolution of sexual reproduction. Maureen, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio, and if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us every Thursday at 10.30 a.m. on UPR. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer is Claire Scott. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot, and I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas. <laughs>